0: Three of the highest peaks within two days, right by Everest. It's quite a story, a spectacular achievement. Uh, and in the documentary, a, the man who holds the previous record for doing it in 16 years, Reinhold Messner, who himself is an amazing individual, he did all uh, 14 without oxygen. Uh, so that's just amazing. But he talks about climbing, and it, um, he talks about this idea of it being fun. Uh, and he basically says, it's not fun. It's painful. It's painful. Uh, it's a painful thing to do this, to force yourself to climb the mountain peak, to get to the summit, and then get back down. But obviously, for Reinhold and Nims, uh, the glory of the accomplishment was worth the pain of the process. And this illustrates a reality in life that glory is achieved through pain, glory comes through suffering and difficulty. It's a reality. In this life, and it's uh, most poignantly demonstrated in the life of Christ Himself, our Savior, who through the greatest pain achieved the greatest glory, accomplishing the will of the Father to rescue countless people from spiritual death and, and to renew eventually the entire creation. As it is true with mountain climbers, as it is true with Jesus, it is true with His followers as well. We achieve glory through suffering. And Romans 8, chapter 8, 18 through 39 is meant to establish this truth, but also to strengthen us for the journey. So let's pray as we learn to climb the mountain of life to glory, achieving glory through suffering. Let's ask God for help. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, You don't leave us to ourselves. You don't merely tell us this principle and then leave us. But You equip us and You strengthen us and You meet us and You give us Your Word, Your living Word, which ministers to us even now. Thank You, God, that You are here and want to speak to us. And we ask You, Lord, give us ears to hear. Help me, Lord, to teach well and proclaim well to serve You and to serve Your people, to serve each one here, that they might hear from You that we might learn these truths, be strengthened for them. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 and going to the end. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit. than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's Word from Romans chapter 8. Verses 18 through 39. Well, let's dig in to what we see here. Let's learn about this reality of this life that's destined for glory through suffering. I want to take us through this to see this major theme, but also to see in it that we are to live expecting our future glory and we are to live depending on our triune God. So, those are my three points. We're destined for glory through suffering we're to expect glory, we depend, and thirdly, we're depending on our triune God as we journey through suffering to glory. So first, we are destined for glory through suffering. Last week, we left off at verse 17. We learned in those verses, those first 17 verses, that life uh, in the Spirit overcomes the Death from the flesh. We learned that the Spirit applies the atonement of Christ, whereby Christ took on flesh, became human, and then took our sins upon Himself and was condemned for our sin. That in Christ, the just penalty for our sins is paid by Him. And through Him and through faith in Him, we are counted righteous. Secondly, that we overcome the death of the flesh by the power of the Spirit in us. He is our only hope to walk in true righteousness. And indeed, God Himself in us grants us power to love God and to love one another and to, for His sake, walk in true righteousness. And so we overcome the flesh through the power of the Spirit. And at the end of that section, we saw this truth that we are sons and daughters. This truth behind all this is that we are sons and daughters of God through Christ. We are part of the family and the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are sons and daughters and our own spirit cries out in in this power of the Holy Spirit in us, Abba, Father, relating to God as our dear Father. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters as part of the family with our elder brother Christ. And, And with him, of course, we follow in his steps In a lesser but significant way, we are co-sufferers and we are co-sharers in His glory. So that's where that section ended. And now verse 18 and following is going to pick up on this idea of being co-sharers in His glory and co-sufferers. It's an important paradigm for the Christian life. What we see in these verses are really important for us to understand what's going on and and how we're to do this. How we're to, to get through this. And Paul sets this principle in verse 18 that's so important for us to have as we start. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The glory that is to be revealed to us, as the ESV says. He sets these realities before us. Indeed, there are the sufferings of this present time. And he's going to go on. You heard as we read through that. These sufferings can be significant for sure. We need to acknowledge that. And of course, they vary in how we each encounter the different sufferings. We don't necessarily all experience everything we just read. but, But the human experience and the human experience in Christ is to experience these sufferings. And yet there's glory that's to be revealed. There's a glory that's awaiting us. There's a glory we've already experienced, of course, and we are, have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. God himself is in us. There's glorious things going on, but there's a fullness of glory that awaits us. And, and so Paul sets these side by side, but he says about them they, the, that the sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. That's an important principle. Acknowledge that there's sufferings Acknowledge that there there is glory, but realize that the sufferings are not comparable to the glory. The glory far outweighs any suffering. We must consider them proportionally as Scripture teaches us. They aren't comparable. And Paul says this elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction. That's how he describes suffering. And Paul went through a lot of suffering. Probably better qualified than any of us to speak about suffering. And yet he called it this light momentary affliction. Not downplaying the seriousness of suffering. Suffering can be extremely difficult. It can feel overwhelming. It can undo us. Paul himself despaired of life itself in his sufferings. But he calls it a light momentary affliction. Which is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The glory that awaits us is far greater than any suffering we might face. As great and significant as that is. This is true in the life of Christ, by the way. Christ lived in light of this truth. And he went through greater sufferings than any human will ever go through in his agony on the cross bearing the weight of sin and the holy justice of God. Never mind the physical agony of crucifixion. And it says about him in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, we are to look to Jesus, verse 2, in in our lives, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Christ get through the suffering? He looked through the suffering to what was on the other side. He set his sight on the joy that was before him. The, the, the fruit that would come from his suffering. And he despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. We have glory awaiting us. And that's what this passage teaches us. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself has been subjected to futility And we experience that futility. And yet creation is also waiting and longing for this future revealing of the sons of God. That's the glory that is coming. Actually, if you look through this passage in the beginning, the the word wait is used three times. And if you notice in the ESV and other translations, it it usually adds an adverb to wait. So waiting eagerly, it says two times, or, or with eager longing and then with patience, it says. What's going on in the ESV is they're trying to capture a word that we don't quite have in, in English. It's a verb in, in the original language that means to wait eagerly, to wait with anticipation, to wait kind of on your tippy toes for something to, to come. Think of, a, think of a, a young child maybe who loves music and loves Bands, and and they're going to a parade for their first time, and they're there with the crowd, and and they're there with their parents, and they hear the, the band, and they hear the drums coming down the street. What does that little kid do? He wants to get through the crowd and see, and that child is on his tippy toes looking to see, eagerly awaiting what's coming. That's the sense here. Creation and the believer. To be eagerly awaiting this glory that's coming. To look ahead. To to hear the sound of the approach of of the glory that's in store for all of us. In our fully redeemed bodies. Fully glorified in his presence. Fully glorified in the new creation on the, the the new earth. With the new heavens and the new earth. This glory is coming. The parade. The sound. We hear the sound. It's on its way. And we are to be eagerly awaiting this glory even as we suffer. Just like Jesus did on the cross. Looking forward to what comes. Enduring it with patience. To know that this is going to be accomplished. That the promises that are there are true. Just as Christ rose from the dead. Victorious over sin and death. He is the promise of this. Just as you've received the Holy Spirit in you. You have a new life. You are a different person now in Christ by the power of the Spirit. That is a deposit guaranteeing that future glory. Just as those things have happened, the work will be finished. You will experience the fullness of glory in all the things in life that you suffered through. All the difficulties in life. All the things that you had to endure when you felt like you couldn't make it another second. When your emotions, the negative emotions, were were floods on you again and again and washed over you. When you felt like the darkness was so dark there can't ever be light again. As you waited and trusted in Christ somehow to get you to the other side, all those things will be turned into glory. All those things will result in reward. All those things will add to the glory you experience at the end. All those things are good works in the sight of the Lord. As you trust Him through suffering. And they all will be swallowed up in unimaginable glory. And you won't have any regrets for having gone through those things. Because you will understand the plan and you understand the redemptive work of the Lord through sufferings and difficulties. You will understand it in the fullness of the plan. And you will see the glory in yourself. You will see the glory in your brothers and sisters. You will see the glory in the new creation. I love what Martin Luther says about all this. He says, If we consider the greatness and the glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day, after the sentence has been pronounced, not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. I know it's difficult. I know life. Is hard at times for us. But in Christ. He works all things for good. To conform us to the image of Christ. To reveal that glory. And you will at that final moment there. In the presence of the Lord. In his new creation. Have no regrets. And perhaps even have the sentiment. Martin Luther speaks of. My brothers and sisters. Hang in there. It won't be long. You are destined For glory through suffering. Second point, verses 20 to 25. We expect glory. We hope in glory through suffering. Related, of course, to the first. But more detail here in these verses. It says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation was subjected to futility. We spent time a little while ago... Uh, about a half a year, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, uh, the main theme, uh, as we read it in the ESV, is vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the teacher. Do you remember that? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's the exact same word as futility here. So perhaps it should have been futility, futility. All is futility. This world we live in, this creation, though full of much goodness has been subjected to futility. Things don't work the way they ought to work. Things go wrong. There is something wrong with this world. And we all know it. We see it in ourselves. We see it around us. Romans 8 here says, We're in bondage to corruption. We see glory, we see the glory of the original creation, but everything's been tainted. We see the glory in one another, in human beings, made in the image of God. The most glorious part of creation is humanity. And yet, we see it tainted. We see the brokenness of creation. We try to grasp glory here, and it's elusive, and it slips through our hands. This is the reality. Creation has been subjected to futility in hope. We're not to look at the futility and merely stay there, but to have hope for redemption, to turn us in hope. Why? Because Christ has come. Christ has come and entered into our world, our broken world, and experienced this futility, experienced the the difficulties here, and demonstrated his lordship over all things. In his miracles, they are Uh, signs of his lordship over everything. And so his miracles demonstrate his lordship over all the problems of the world. Sin and Satan and sickness, natural disasters are all under Jesus. And he came and fulfilled our righteousness. And he took upon himself our sins, died for them in our place, rose again victorious over sin and death to lead us out of this futility, to grant us a sure hope in the midst of our futility. Paul says that creation is groaning in the pain of childbirth. It's an apt comparison. Because there's a birthing coming. There's a process going on, but there's a groaning and a birthing that awaits. And that's the revelation of the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. The revelation of those who have been rescued from their sin and who belong to Jesus and will be fully transformed in the very glory that Christ has right now. Creation is awaiting that this life that is coming. And we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have a down payment of it. And yet we groan inwardly, don't we? We groan as we deal with life. We groan as we walk through suffering. We groan as we, we know it just, it just shouldn't be this way. There's something wrong with this world and with this life. We groan for the culmination of all these things. And it will come. We live in a sure hope. We don't yet see it. It's not here fully yet. But we expect it. This is the gift of faith that he's given us. It's faith that's a reasonable faith. It's faith based on truth. But it's the gift of faith to place our faith in the truth declared about Christ, that Christ has come, He has died, He has risen, He's ruling, He's coming again. That's a gift and faith produces hope. Faith produces the expectation that the fullness of what we believe will come about. And so we live in hope. Hope is powerful and important for the Christian life. Hope functions in this reality as we await glory through suffering. And one of the best things we can do for one another is to strengthen our hope, to encourage each other, to remind each other of what we already have as a foretaste and what we will have. When we were overseas, we met a new friend, a dear friend, I'll call him Pastor Jay. He's a brother who's pastored for a number of decades and he spends uh, almost half a year actually, church commissions him to go and support leaders in in, uh, hard places in the world, pioneering places. He's a gifted and a skilled pastor, but you know what he does more than anything? He's just a superb encourager. He's like Barnabas in the Bible, son of encouragement. He is quick to point out the activity of God. He's quick to remind others of, of how faithful God is. He's quick to remind others of what awaits them. That's really what he does more than anything. And this man is used powerfully, among many people in foreign countries. Brothers and sisters, we should be like Pastor Jay. We should be like him in encouraging one another. We should be like doulas who come alongside each other as we grow and await what awaits us to strengthen and assist one another, to remind each other of what is ahead, to remind each other of the promise of the reward for faithful suffering, to encourage one another as we expect glory through suffering. And finally, verses 26 to 39. In this process, we rely on God through our suffering as we journey to glory. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here in this verse and then in following, we're going to see the the whole Trinity involved in helping us in this journey. The Spirit of God is spoken of first. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. How does the Spirit help us? What does the Spirit do? Well, it says we do not know what to pray for as we ought. It's hard to know when you're in sufferings exactly how to pray. Our human weakness affects us. We're limited. We're, we're, we're people who feel emotions and feel pain. And, and that can become overwhelming for us. And we can lose sight of what is really important through it all. We can, we can have that difficult circumstance, that suffering, really fill our vision. And, and, and our prayer is, please, take this away. And that may not be what we ought to pray for. By the way, th- we see this in the life of Christ, so I don't want you to be discouraged by that. Jesus himself, sinless, perfect, God in the flesh, when he faced what was coming on the cross, he was overwhelmed. He was grieved. And he prayed, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. In the garden, he was overcome with sorrow. As he suffered, as he faced his sufferings, it was overwhelming in his humanity. That's normal. It's normal human response to difficulty, to feel afraid or anxious, to dread something. Now, it can become sin if we let it rule us. If we forget God and run to an idol, that's when it turns into sin. But that, that first natural response, that's normal humanity that's jesus in the garden and it's in those moments where we need help now christ of course we know he prayed not my will but yours be done he in his perfect communion with the father and the holy spirit did pray that finished his prayer with that he prayed what he ought to have prayed lord father it's not about my will humanly speaking my human will it's about your will And the Holy Spirit helps us in that way. We don't don't know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. They are wordless groans, by the way. This is a groan that's so deep in the Spirit, there aren't words to put to it. And they are expressions from the very Spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit, fully God, who dwells in us, to God the Father. And God the Father who searches hearts completely knows the mind of the Spirit as the Spirit intercedes for us in the very best way according to the will of the Father. The Spirit knows exactly how to convey our angst and our situation in the most appropriate prayer to the Father. He knows what is best for us, better than we do, and He intercedes for us. This is amazing. Think about it. There's inter-Trinitarian communion going on between the Spirit in you who knows your suffering, who knows your struggles, who knows your spirit and your mind to the Father who searches your heart and knows you and the Spirit is asking exactly the right thing to the Father about you. The Spirit within you, Holy Spirit within you doing that. It's an amazing thing. We are part of this, this communion, this prayer going on between the Spirit and the Father in our weakness, In our suffering. That should encourage us greatly. We don't always know what to pray. And yet the Spirit is praying. It is good news. It's assurance. Now, by the way, this isn't speaking about praying in tongues or speaking in tongues. That's a gift, a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what's being said here because praying or speaking in tongues is using words. Be they angelic or human words. But this is wordless groans. This is a different thing. This is for all believers. The gift of tongues is not necessarily for all believers. This is a gift for all believers. This groaning going on by the Holy Spirit to the Father on your behalf. What good news. What strength this should be for us to know this is going on in our sufferings. As we're journeying to glory through suffering. The Spirit of God is interceding to the Father in the very best way for us. Can you imagine if, for some reason, there were a group of the most powerful people in the world, the wealthiest, the best experts in whatever field, just formed this A-team for you? They just took a liking to you for some reason. And they formed this A-team. And this A-team's job was to make sure whatever was going on in your life, that they took care of the problem. And they would occasionally, you know talk to you, interview you, find out what's going on, and then they would bring all the resources in. They, I don't know, they you know, airlift you out somewhere and bring you to some place, or, or just do something like that. Something, obviously, far-fetched, something like a Marvel movie. But just imagine that. Every problem you had. And they came in, and they came to rescue you in this way. It would be amazing. But you have actually something better than that. You have the A-team of the Spirit of God with the Father, interceding for you for the very best outcome, the very best outcome in your life. That's going on for real all the time. That's what the Word of God declares here, and that is meant to strengthen you as you journey through suffering to glory. It's amazing. We are destined for glory through suffering and God the Spirit is helping us. Next, God the Father helps us. Verses 28-31. to 31. It's amazing help that's described in verses 28-31. It says in verse 28, the well-known verse, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It says all things work together for good. It doesn't say some things. Or a couple things. One thing. It says all things. I, I think that includes everything, right? All things. All things work together for the good. Those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now these are two descriptions of the same person. We've been learning as we go through that this is a person who belongs to the Lord. This is you. And you might look at this and think, well, I'm not sure... Uh, if I love God quite enough to qualify here, I'm not sure if I'm called according to His purpose, but if you placed your faith in Jesus, you can be fully assured that you do have power to love Him. Yes, it's weak. It's not complete. But there's been a miracle of the Holy Spirit in you that's given you a genuine love for God. So you qualify. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, you can know that behind that, God has called you according to his purpose. Now, you don't know how that works. You don't know how it happened, but you can know it because Scripture tells us it's true. So this is you, believer. And if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you, you don't have to go through different hoops to somehow get involved in this verse. You simply need to do this. Turn from your sin and yourself and put all your confidence in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Receive the gift of his death in your place for your sins, his resurrection to overcome sin and death for you. And you can know that you're included here. And you can know that all things now work together for good. It doesn't mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean that the suffering itself is a good thing. That would be a wrong understanding. But the suffering and the difficulty and the challenges, the weakness... The struggles you have to resist the the tendencies and urges you have in you that you know are wrong. As you look to Jesus, all, all these things, God works all these things. All things. Don't exclude anything. Don't exclude any struggle. Don't exclude any circumstance. Don't exclude what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your lives necessarily right now. But think of the most difficult thing. And put that under this category, all things. All things work together for good. He will work good through this. And, and we see this, of course, in the crucifixion itself, right? The crucifixion was not a good thing in and of itself. To, to torture the Son of God in the flesh was not a good thing. To, to have sins put on Christ to bear our sins is not a good thing. But through the crucifixion, the greatest evil ever done, the greatest good was done in conquering sin and death. And similarly, in your life, all things will be used and worked for good to conform you to the image of Christ. That's the goal. The glory that Christ has, you are to share in that glory, and He is conforming you to that image. You belong in that group, you qualify here as a believer. And He uses all things for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. This is part of the strengthening here to recognize that that we are part of the plan of God. That He's working a plan in this. He uses all things for our good. He has a plan here. And the plan is to work in our lives to conform us to Christ. It says in verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew you. Before time began, he knew you. He knew what your life was going to be about. He knew every bit about you. He foreknew you. He saw you. And he predestined you. He determined ahead of time in his plan, his mysterious plan. We don't know how he arrives at these decisions. He's perfect in his wisdom. But nevertheless, in all this, he planned for you to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called, it says in verse 30. So in time, he called you. The Holy Spirit called you. The Holy Spirit worked in your life to give you eyes to see maybe what you hadn't seen before. To give you an awareness. Wow, this stuff I heard before, it makes a lot of sense. Matter of fact, I believe it. And I want it. He called you and he gave you that ability to to hear his voice and respond. And those he called, he justified. For when you put your faith in Jesus, you're... Connected to Christ, you are counted righteous in Christ. Fully forgiven, fully credited with his righteousness. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's interesting, Paul uses the past tense here, glorified. In other words, it's a done deal. You're getting there, you're going there, you will get there. You're guaranteed to get there as a believer, a genuine believer. That's what he's saying here. And the Father is the one doing all this. The Father is the one who's working in this way. This is meant to strengthen you. The Holy Spirit is involved to strengthen you. The Father is behind all this in His plan, in His love, in His mercy, in His faithfulness to see this plan to the end. And finally, verses 32 to 39, we remain secure in the Son in this journey. It says in verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if the father has already given us the most precious commodity the son himself for us to pay for our sins to rescue us he will certainly give us everything else we need because there's nothing else as precious as worthy as his very son Everything else ultimately is small change compared to what he's already paid for you. He's already paid for you with the price of his son. And so why will will we doubt him for these other things? Why will we not be fully assured that he will graciously give us all things we need for this journey if he's given us his very son already? Do you hear that logic? This isn't written just to be a nice verse to recite. But that logic needs to infiltrate our thinking. It needs to influence how we think about life. It needs to affect how we deal with adversity. It needs to affect how we approach need. If he's already given his son for us, surely he'll graciously give us all things, all things we truly need. He's not a miser. God is not stingy. He's already proven that by giving His very Son for you. And so that logic needs to to infiltrate our minds and our hearts so that when we face things, when we face difficulty, we remember that. And we approach things trusting Him to work through that. Yes, it might be hard, but He is faithful. He is gracious. He will give us all things we need. Now Paul continues to (coughs) bring up things that might seem to vie For competition as things too big for God to deal with. suffering's too difficult. And and so there's a long list here. If you could put that verse up. You can see in the, the latter verses here. There's a long list here of things. There are these worst case scenarios that are listed out. There's some pretty significant ones. Is there anything that will separate you from the love of Christ? That's the question. Is there anything... Is there anything possible that will somehow in your journey to glory through suffering will sidetrack you and disqualify you? That will overwhelm you? That will nullify what you have in Christ? Is there anything? That's what Paul is asking. That's what he's posing. And he begins to name certain things. He names worst case scenarios. What are are your worst case scenarios? That's what he does here. Things like severe trials. Like Job's. Severe anxiety, panic attacks, despair, persecutions, beatings, killing of loved ones, famine, going hungry, starving to death, nakedness, so poor you can't buy enough clothing to keep yourself warm, danger, dangers from robbers that might show up and rob you, the sword, warfare, the horrors of war like we see in Ukraine. These are all pretty bad. These are all bad things. And Christians suffer these sorts of things. That's what he says in the middle of this section. He quotes Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you read that psalm, it's a psalm about faithful people. Bad things happening to good people is really what it's about. Faithful people of God suffering. Christians suffer. Often, we are as sheep to be slaughtered. The stats on Christian suffering are overwhelming. We live in a place that's very safe comparative to other places in the world. And for Christians, you not only suffer the normal hardships of a world subjected to futility, but often because of faith, you bring on persecution. And that's what goes on throughout the, throughout the world. This past year, over 340 million Christians lived in a place where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 million million of your brothers and sisters. 4,761 were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. It's estimated that over the course of Christianity, 70 million Christians have died for their faith. We surely are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul's question is, will this sort of suffering be powerful enough to cut us off from the love of God in Christ? Can these sort of horrors loom large enough to snuff out the work of God in our lives? Can they cut us off from this pathway to glory? What does Scripture say here? No. Verse 37. No. In all these things... In all these things, that's amazing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Even in all these worst case scenarios, we never are cut off from God. We are always beloved. He is there for us. The Spirit is helping us. God the Father is in control of the things, and we are secure in the Son. No matter what it is, name it, we are safe. We are more than conquerors. Not death, nor life. Not angels, not demons or rulers, not the present, not the future. Not evil powers, not any dimension, not anything in all creation. It says that, right? Not anything in all creation. Does that leave out anything? No. Apart from God, who's eternal and uncreated. And he's for us, we learn here. Not anything in in all creation. And by the way, some people will, will read this and say, well, it doesn't say about yourself. You can somehow do something to take yourself out You're in creation, right? You can't do it. If all these other things can't do it, you can't take yourself out of Christ. You are safe in Christ. I think that's a clear implication here. And this is meant to strengthen you. Paul is piling up these worst case scenarios so that he would cover everything. So there'd be nothing left out. So don't try to find something. The the point, you missed the point of the the passage. The, The passage is demonstrating there's nothing, nothing. You are secure in Jesus to the very end. So as I finish up here, I hope you hear what Paul is doing, what God is doing through this passage. He's equipping you and encouraging you and strengthening you for the journey as you climb the mount, as you climb it together with others, by the way, as you journey through suffering to glory. This is what you're destined for. We hope for glory. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are with us to encourage and strengthen and keep us all the way. Let's pray.